0: Good morning. As Michael said, um, we are so thankful that you are here to worship with us this morning. My name is Allie Schulman, and I'm one of the pastors here, and happy Palm Sunday. We are at officially the end of Lent, which has been a long season. Lent is a long time, but we have made it to that final week, which we call Holy Week. And today marks the beginning of of a time of preparation for Easter, a more intense and focused time than Lent was. And all of Lent, we have been preaching and teaching about these three chapters in the Gospel of Matthew called the Sermon of the Mount. Pound for pound, word for word, this is the most concise of Jesus's teaching and his preaching in the Bible. If you look at Matthew chapters five through seven and you read them, Most scholars would agree that this, this is really what Jesus is about. So if you want to, and you haven't yet learned a little bit more about who Jesus is and what he taught, go home, spend this Holy Week rereading slowly Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Now, the tricky part is Just like everything else in the Bible, Matthew chapters 5 through 7 takes quite a bit of context to really understand. At first glance, it can be a little difficult. So what we're going to do for the majority of our time today is we're going to do kind of a recap, a summary of the Sermon on the Mount before we get to that final piece that we'll talk about today. So we're going to try to recap what Stephen has said for the last five weeks In about 15 minutes. So bear with me as we do it. But if you like really forced me, held my feet to the fire, if I had to decide what I thought the Sermon on the Mount was about, I would say Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is teaching his followers what it means to be his disciple by calling them to what we've termed a kingdom righteousness kingdom righteousness. So he is teaching his followers, the smaller group, what it means to actually be a disciple of God by calling them to a new kind of righteousness called kingdom righteousness. And he does this by presenting two concepts that are really fleshed out here in Matthews 5 through 7, but also just in the gospel of Matthew. It's kind of these two themes in Matthew. And the first one is what is referred to as the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven. Now, these are very confusing terms. Historically, how we've been raised, how we talk about this thing. Sometimes we shorthand them and say heaven. It's a a confusing term for most of us. But here's what I always think about when I think about the kingdom of heaven as presented in the Gospel of Matthew. The kingdom is not a realm. It is a rule. And let me explain that further often we think of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven as this afterlife state, this thing that happens after we die, or maybe even when Jesus comes again. It's this future state that is a place. It's a realm. It's a separate time and space. But really, the Bible never talks about the kingdom of heaven that way. It does imply that there is a future state, but more often than not, the kingdom of heaven is not a separate realm. It is actually a an idea of when God rules. So God's rule or reign over the earth is what the kingdom of heaven is about. It is this idea of God giving rules and humans and creation obeying those rules to live into them as God originally intended us to. Think of the image of the Garden of Eden. That is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what's super interesting about Matthew and really about Jesus is that in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus implies that the kingdom of heaven is not this future state, but is actually accessible to us now. We can experience this version of Eden here and now through righteousness. And that leads us to our second concept, righteousness. Righteousness is a very religious term. Often we kind of just turn off our ears. We don't really know what it means or we have a vague sense, but it doesn't feel super important to our lives. But in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Jewish tradition, tradition righteousness is a very important term. Most simple definition, righteousness means right living. It has to do with how you live or how you practice your life. And the idea is that you do that right living by being in right relationship with God and with others. Righteousness was kind of uh, assumed in the Old Testament to be an identity marker for Jews. You see, they were to be reflective of God. and, And to do that, they themselves had to be righteous. And so they had to live their lives in a righteous way. Righteousness for a long time, and, and certainly in the Old Testament, meant something like following the Jewish law that was given from, by Moses, right? So God gives Moses the law, and then over the next few centuries, people take turns interpreting that law and kind of embellishing it in some way. And a Jew's job, a righteous Jew's job, was to follow that law. And it dictated everything in your life. What you ate, what you wore, where you worshiped, all the things. And for us, that actually can feel like super limiting. That can feel like, oh my God, like that feels like too much. But for them, it was actually this way of experiencing what was supposed to be Eden. This idea of a right relationship with God and a right relationship with others. And most of the laws or commands that are in the law are about relationships, both with creation and creatures, and others, and God. And they're all about these things. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, interestingly, Jesus doesn't dismiss the law. He doesn't say, oh no, 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 that righteousness is completely wrong. In fact, like at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, there's a very famous line that Jesus says, and he says, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Now, there's a lot of debate about what fulfill means. And it can mean a lot of things. You can interpret it as Jesus lived a perfect life and so he fulfilled the law. But I actually think the more true definition of what fulfill means is that Jesus came back to teach the law and to interpret it correctly. Basically, for centuries, people had been viewing the law with the wrong lens. They have been trying to understand it in the wrong way. They've been focused too much on one part and not enough on another, and they weren't living rightly. So Jesus comes back to fulfill it or to kind of explain its importance or the intent behind the law to try to really challenge people about what the law actually was. And in the Sermon of the Mount, that is exactly what Jesus does for most of the Sermon on the Mount. He's trying to challenge the old interpretations of the law and the religious practices that went with it. And he tries to reinterpret it according to God's original intent. And this makes sense because Jesus, of course, was God. So he could, with authority, speak to what the law actually meant. Now, as part of our recap, I want to do a quick overview of what this actually looked like in the Sermon on the Mount. This will be a review For those of you who have already listened to our Lenten series, but for those of you who hadn't, these are just some examples of what that reinterpretation looks like. And it's important. So let's let's start with the very beginning and probably the most famous. How does the Sermon on the Mount start? Oh, it starts with those beautiful poem that starts, Blessed are, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. And those are called the Beatitudes. Now, what's so interesting is you read them and you kind of expect them to be this um, condoning of righteous life. But in fact, the descriptors are kind of weird. It's like the poor in spirit, blessed are the mourners, blessed are those who grieve. It's kind of this gamut of different types of people. And for us as modern readers, it kind of just feels weird to be reading those Beatitudes and not quite understanding what they are because they certainly aren't aspirational. They're not something that we want to be. Do we want to mourn? Do we want to grieve? No, you see, what Jesus is actually tackling from the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount is not the question of what the law is. Not yet. He does that later. But he's actually questioning who the law is for. You see, in, in this day in Judaism, as it is in religion now, we often assume that the rules of living only apply to those who are righteous looking, to those who practice religion well. And that had become true more and more of Judaism. It had kind of relied on its rituals and its religious practices as a way of dictating righteousness. And Jesus says, oh, no, 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 no. The kingdom of God, this thing that I'm ushering in by being here, this thing that you can access now by being my disciple, it's for everyone It's supposed to kind of radicalize our view of who is to be included in the law. And so he reinterprets that very question. Who is the law for? Oh, it's for everyone. Everyone. That's who the law is for. And then the second example that we come up is probably the hardest. If you're reading this on your own, if you're going to go home and read Matthew 5 through 7... This is going to be what's challenging you. And I want to read it because it's a famous example. So Jesus says, you've heard it said, i.e. in the law, in the Torah, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with their brother or sister will be in danger of judgment. And you can imagine that that reinterpretation threw the listeners for a loop. What do you mean? What do you mean we can't be angry with each other? Anger is like a very real thing. It's a common human experience. It's a common human emotion. And it's more confusing because Jesus himself gets angry later in the gospel. God gets angry. People get angry. We can't not be angry with one another. So at first you could just say, oh, this is hyperbole, whatever. But we actually have to look at what is Jesus doing? How is he questioning that law, which is part of the Ten Commandments? Do not commit murder. What Jesus is trying to get at here and elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount, because he continues kind of reinterpreting some laws later, is that the law at the time, as it's understood by Jews, is actually very limited. It's limited in its interpretation. It's not seeing the full extent, the full intent behind God's heart in providing the law. So sure, the law prohibits murder. And that makes sense because God wants humans to be in relationship with one another and murder is the termination of relationship in some ways. But Jesus is saying, no, no, God's desire is more than just the physical termination of relationship. God's desire is for us not to be in broken, unrepaired relationships with one another, especially those in your community, which is why he uses the word brother or sister. God's desire for his people is to have a restored, right relationship with those around you. And that means that you do not hold on to your anger. That remains the fact that you do not let that bitterness and resentment foster in you. You are called to repair that relationship. You see, he was shifting that understanding that staying angry, insulting people, which is something he brings up later, those can cause destruction just like murder. And so we need to be conscious of our actions beyond just the physical limitation of life. And of course, he goes on to explain judgment. And most people think that those are kind of a hyperbole, a warning of sort. That was pretty common in how rabbis spoke at the time. But the point is clear. In the law, According to Jesus' followers, there should be no permanently broken relationship among God's people, either that you cause or that you fail to repair. This is a radically different understanding from the limited interpretation of murder. And it challenges his followers. Jesus is arguing like, no, 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 this is what you should be paying attention to. Not just your actions, but the heart behind your actions, that anger that feeds into something better. Before you even get to the point of murder, there is something there that needs to be resolved. And he continues in his reinterpretation. This is the last example we're going to cover. Because a good part of the Sermon of the Mount is talking about religious practices of the day. Prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. So he's talking about these three practices. And overall, these practices are kind of assumed the norm in the law. They're part of the religious practice that goes along with being a good Jew. You do these things. But over time, like I said, these things have become increasingly public. They have been kind of poisoned by social structures of the day and and sin and become kind of these things to use as a status symbol or social approval so that other people around you would know that you were doing right because that was important in that day and age. And Jesus says, oh no, no, no. If you fast, go put oil on your head and clean your face so you look fresh and new. Don't let anyone know that you are fasting. And almsgiving, give in secret. That's even better. Don't Give publicly and pray, close the door and pray. Now, of course, does Jesus then say that no public worship is allowed? No. But what he's saying is that we have to rethink what those practices are for. Those practices, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, are about right relationship with God, they're about that personal devotion to God. They aren't about social approval. That was never the intent of the law. God never intended to give us these practices in hopes that we would go show off to other people. They are about restoring that right relationship so that we can live in God's kingdom. And so Jesus challenges those notions of a showy religion. And that mattered to the Jews of the day, since that was so integral to their understanding of how religion worked. Now, just those three examples are just a small portion of the Sermon on the Mount. But there's a lot of other things that Jesus reinterprets. And that's basically what he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He's trying to reinterpret the law to help us reimagine so that we, as his followers and his disciples, might think more clearly about what it is we're supposed to do in this life. How are we supposed to act as God's people and who are we supposed to include? This is a really interesting idea because I got to tell you, as Christians, we tend to dismiss any notion of law or righteousness. I mean, we don't have to act a certain way, right? That's, that's why, not really. I mean, that's why Jesus died for us, right? That's what this Friday is about, is that he took on every mistake we'll ever make, and, and we're covered. We don't have to think about how we act. And, and sure, like we should try to be good people. We should try to be good people, just like everyone else should try to be a good person in the world, Christian or not. We should try to be good people, but we don't have to actually follow any rules, right? I gotta tell you, that's what I thought too for a long time. Until you take the gospel of Matthew, and other parts of the Bible seriously. Which brings us to the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. So if you'll join me, you can flip, open up another tab and find Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. It's a familiar story, but I want us to reread it out loud, the whole whole three verses. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice It's like a wise builder who built a house on bedrock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the wind blew and beat against that house. It didn't fall because it was firmly set on bedrock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice will be like a fool who built a house on sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the wind blew and beat against that house. It fell and was completely destroyed." You see, what Jesus is telling his followers at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, a few metaphors, uh, there's a few parables above this that he's doing the same thing. He's trying to explain what it means to be a true disciple. What it means to live into, to see, experience the kingdom of God here and now. To experience that path of life to its fullest. And it involves hearing his words, and putting them into practice. In other words, it involves doing things, living life, practicing our lives in a certain way. Jesus doesn't give any indication in the Sermon on the Mount that he's getting rid of the law. He gives us a new way to think about it, one that includes a more fuller understanding of what God's rule looks like for us. And sure, That means over time we've let go of several of smaller rules around dietary restrictions and how to worship because they don't have any bearing now that Jesus himself has come. But it doesn't mean that some rules, especially the ones about right relationship with God and right relationship with others, don't still apply. And let me be very clear. Those rules don't apply as a ticket for salvation. That's not what they are. We believe that faith alone saves. That belief in Jesus as the Messiah is what saves you. But after that initial conversion, whether that was in your baptism as an infant, whether that was later in life, after that initial conversion, salvation is a process. And part of that process is living life according to God's will. We have a name for that part of the journey of salvation, a fancy one, we call it sanctification. The idea that you are becoming more Christ-like in character that is actually accessible to you now to be more like Christ because of the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how you experience the kingdom of God here. That's what we mean when we say that the kingdom of God is now and not yet. Your behavior, how you act, matters. Not that you may be called a child of God, but that you may live into what it means to be a child of God. You see, God gave Moses and the escaped Jews in the wilderness the law so that they could live according to God's will and therefore be representatives for God on earth. And our call, as gentiles as christians that have been included into god's people our calls the same thing true disciples lead a marked life a life that is different because it is marked by the habits of christ and while we may not know or have a set of rules to cling to It's not like we don't have anything. In the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere in the Bible, Jesus presents to us a set of new rules almost, a reinterpretation of the old rules, a Jesus ethic, if you will. We have some guidelines. And in order for us to live into this kingdom, we must abide by them. We choose forgiveness over vengeance, reconciliation over anger or bitterness, contentment and self-control over taking what you want, personal devotion to God rather than social structures that support it, humility over pride, generosity over greed, curiosity over judgment, peace over violence, hope over defeat, and love over fear. Always. It is not unclear what the boundaries of how we should behave are. But for too long, we have dismissed them, that we do not need to act a certain way. But the Sermon of the Mount makes clear that we are to live into who Christ called us to be fully because we're supposed to act now how everyone's supposed to act when the kingdom of God comes to its completion, when Jesus comes again. We're supposed to act like we are in Eden again. And the only reason that this is possible is not because of your strength, I don't think that's a surprise, is because of the power of the Holy Spirit that you received when you were baptized. The idea that God is in you and with you and animating you, restoring you to this kingdom self that he so desperately believes in and wants for you. And there's a lot of reasons, I think, as to why we choose to be a true disciple. Jesus tries to paint a few pictures of them at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about walking through a narrow gate because the narrow gate leads to the path of life and a wide gate leads to a path of destruction. He's saying, Walk this way because this is the life giving path. And later, in a different gospel, he calls it abundant life. We can live better, fuller, how God intended here. That's a reason why we choose to change our lives. But I think it's interesting then in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus just ends it with maybe the more practical reason of why we choose to be a true disciple. You know, in my job, I I meet with a lot of parents, parents who themselves are not super convicted about Christianity, but they're trying and they're trying to live it out. And we talk about whether they should bring their kid to church or whether that's important. And the number one reason that I give when I'm talking about why church matters is because in this day and age, your kids need something to hold on to. Storms will happen Wind will blow and your kids need a house that stands firm. Jesus is saying that, look, if there's no other reason to follow me truly, to change your life, to live in to the belief that you profess, then hear this, this path, these choices, this decision making, this law, my rule, will hold you when storms come. My hope for us this Palm Sunday is that we may take this Holy Week and examine what we mean when we take those palms and lay them down on the road before Jesus. You see, the palm meant kingship. It was a sign of confession that Jesus is your king. But those people on that day confessed Jesus as king and then went on to live the rest of the week in a very different manner. And on Friday, ended up yelling, crucify him. Their whole self, their whole being, their whole way of life was not living under God's rule. And my question today for us is is ours. Let us pray. Holy and merciful God, as we approach this week that is full of so many trials and tribulations, may we not be afraid of the conviction that it brings. May we walk steadily along these next few days. May we take this week to focus and prepare for the news that you have come. And maybe more importantly, Lord, may your spirit animate and encourage and empower us to to take the next step and to believe when you called us to change our hearts and lives because the kingdom of God is near. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.